Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would go over another legal case. Sometimes on this podcast, I'll make an episode about a real legal ethical case that went to court, and I would provide some detail and some analysis and some recommendations about how to avoid being sued if you're a therapist. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. So uh, in this episode, I'm going to talk about the laws of child pornography disclosures and documentation recommendations and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes like this one in which we do deep dives into various topics. So please do so now. Go to patreon.com and become a patron. This is a legal case that I got from my – so my malpractice insurance, as some of you know, every once in a while sends me a case in which someone went to court. So in other words, like, you know, it's my malpractice insurance. You know, therapists pay for malpractice insurance the same way that physicians do. And as a way for my – I'm assuming as a way for my malpractice insurance to reduce their costs, they want to prevent us uh, customers, us therapists, from being sued in the first place. They want to help us to reduce our risks, which in turn is good for us, obviously, and good for clients, but also good for them and their bottom line because they don't have to pay out – to um, you know, malpractice claims, right? It's sort of like if you have health insurance and your health insurance sends out a newsletter and says, by the way, you should be exercising and you shouldn't eat the, these kinds of foods and you should monitor your blood pressure and, you know, da 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 So I'm assuming that's why they do it. And it's great because in a lot of books and classes on ethics and the law in in my field – they usually talk theoretically about a lot of these things, and there's not a lot of really hard um, factual examples of these things actually happening. You know, it's because there's like all these laws and ethical codes, but it's like it's interesting to actually learn how these things get adjudicated in actual courts and ethical boards. And so uh, I'm really fascinated by these stories. and. And so uh, I'm going to talk about one now that I got in August 2018. I just got this a few days ago from my malpractice insurance, which is HPSO. And uh, this is an interesting case because it's not like the normal one that uh, – or it's it's different from the other ones I've talked about. Okay. So this person – the person who was sued eventually, he was a male counselor or is a male counselor. And he is was the clinical director for a community-based residential program. So it's a, a program that has their clients living in the house for one reason or another. And the program provided services for troubled youth and would house them. And they helped teens transition from their residential care to being independent and one of their programs, one of these residential programs, was for teen males with quote-unquote sexualized behaviors. So just to let everyone know, I, the, the clinical or the, the legal brief 
is very brief and and not very specific. And and I, I'm guessing to protect the confidentiality of those involved. I'm not sure, but and maybe to make it not super long. But uh, there's a lot of details that were left out, so I'm, I have to sort of assume some things or throw out some possibilities. So so this therap this therapist counselor was a clinical director for a residential program and he oversaw a residential program for teen males with quote unquote sexualized behaviors which i'm guessing were sexual assault his you know these these teen boys had sexual assault histories they had histories of assaulting other people in a sexual way uh, child molestation is a, is a common um scenario so uh so there we go okay the the counselor's responsibilities the clinical director, the person who was eventually sued in this story. His responsibilities include supervising the care of the clients in the program. So he's in charge, I'm guessing, usually a clinical director is in charge of at least one residential facility. And residential facilities can range anywhere from housing like five people to housing like 15, 20 people. I mean, that's the range I usually see. It's usually small. It's usually in the five to 10 people range. And so he, he was either the clinical director of, of just one facility or maybe a, a set of facilities. It's, un, it's unclear. But he was in charge of initial assessments, so he probably oversaw the assessments or even did the assessments themselves. Some, sometimes clinical directors will actually do the assessments themselves. And then they are in charge. He was also in charge of assigning the clients after assessing them initially to particular services like group therapy or psychiatry or individual therapy. And the clinical director, uh, this counselor, he was also in charge of coordinating with psychiatrists for medication. Okay. So now, so that's the counselor who was sued. Now let's go to the person who sued the counselor. This was a client of the counselor. He was a 19-year-old male. He was in the residential program for two years. He had been previously convicted of a some sort of sexual crime. They didn't say what it was, but I assume, given later details, that it had something to do with sexual molestation of a child or something involving child pornography. I'm not sure. And so he was convicted of a crime, this 19-year-old client, and he was on parole. And so I'm guessing that he was convicted of a crime when he was 17. He probably committed a set of crimes in his early to mid teenage years, and part of his uh, sentence was to go to treatment and maybe even live in this residential program. Uh, I'm not quite sure, but he was on parole, which you know means he was being overseen by the state to make sure that he uh, stays out of trouble and uh, uh, complies with treatment recommendations so that it will reduce his risk of doing these kinds of things in the future. Okay. So that's the client. And the incident that led to this whole thing happening was the client um, moved into a new room and had a new roommate. And he asked to use his roommate's computer. And the roommate said, sure, you can use my computer. The roommate went to work and this this client used the roommate's computer. And the next morning, the roommate uh, opened up his laptop and saw that child pornography had been downloaded onto his computer. 
and this roommate was terrified that he was going to get in trouble for it, right? I mean, presumably the roommate also was convicted of a sexual crime or had some history involving that and was really worried that, you know, he was going to get implicated for uh, what this other uh, client did on his computer. So the roommate went to the counselor and told him what he found. And so the counselor, the clinical director, he checked the computer and confirmed that indeed this client had uh, downloaded uh, child pornography, uh, believing that, you know, what the roommate had said. So the counselor calls the police and the counselor told the police uh, apparently only as much as what was needed. So, you know, the counselor didn't say everything that he knew about the client, but he said enough to report about the child pornography being downloaded onto the laptop. And he told the police that the client had was on parole and had passed arrests, um, which may not have been necessary to disclose, but apparently he did disclose that as well. So the police investigated. They interviewed the client who downloaded the pornography, the child pornography, and the child admitted to downloading the child pornography. And uh, it was determined that this was a clear violation of his parole, right? And so the police arrested the client for possessing child pornography and for violating his parole. The The story it's, uh, was somehow published in the newspaper. Not really quite sure. I'm guessing that the press found out through police reports uh, and because I think uh, many police reports are public knowledge. And um, uh, and but definitely the counselor did not tell the press that that was not later a uh, accusation. So so again, the police investigate. They're like, oh, and the client admits to it. They uh, arrest him and detain him for violating his parole and also for possessing child pornography. The story gets published in the newspaper. The client is detained for several days. And then he was released back back to the residential home. So back in the home, the client told the counselor he was upset that the counselor had told the police about what he did. The client thought that that kind of stuff was confidential, right? It's like, wait a second. Why did you tell the police about this child pornography thing? I thought what happened in this, you know, in treatment was confidential. It seems like you broke my confidentiality. Um, now, the brief didn't go into detail about this conversation, so I'm not sure, but they, they did tell that detail. All right. So that is what happened. Well, let's pause here for a second to review the laws and the, confident, and the, and the um, codes of, uh, of uh, the ethical codes. So the brief didn't go into detail about the laws or the ethical codes. It, they just sort of leave it up to us to know that or look it up or something. So that's what I did. So, so let's talk about the laws involved in this, you know, because um, later the, the client sues the counselor for breaking confidentiality. Later, the client says, um, my counselor did not have the right to tell the police about the child pornography on my, that I downloaded on my computer. The, you know, the client saying, yes, I did download child pornography on that computer, but my therapist doesn't have the right to report that. And so I'm going to sue that counselor for, for doing that. So let's look into that. Well, the counselor um, did break confidentiality, right? Uh, clients deserve confidentiality. They have the right to confidentiality. But the counselor did break confidentiality by calling the police and reporting what he saw on the computer. And 
Whenever we counselors, we therapists break confidentiality, we risk having our license being revoked by the state, and we also risk being sued for violating someone's rights. So we have to really make sure that the law either mandates or allows for this kind of, of uh, confidentiality violation. Uh, okay, so, so what some people out there might be thinking is, well, you know, this this creep, this creepazoid was in possession of child pornography, and that's a crime. So, of course, we have to report that, right? As, a, as, a, as counselors, we have to report that. Um, and, the, and I hear this a lot from, from novice therapists, and even, even experienced therapists will, will say it's like, well, if my, you know, if, if my client commits a crime, I have to report that, right? And I, and I always cringe when I hear that because the assumption should be confidentiality. The, the assumption should, should be that you never report to anybody, particularly the police, anything that your clients say. And that unless you're really sure that you sh- need to or that it's okay ethically and legally to do so, then then you you know then you just begin the consideration of breaking that that confidentiality. But I've seen over the past I don't know I don't know ten or fifteen years this sort of like general erosion of the assumption of confidentiality, which I find to be quite concerning. I mean, the whole point of confidentiality is that. If we are going to help the public, the public has to believe that we are not going to tell anybody about what they tell us because there are some things that are so shameful, so stigmatized that people will not seek help if they believe that we're going to blab it to, to somebody, right? And so, you know, if, if someone is worried that, you know, someone's being sexually abused by their father, for example— and they come to us, then they should have that be confidential because they, if they come forward and tell us, if, if, if they know we're just going to blab about it, then they won't come to us, right? Well, you know, that's a kind of interesting situation because we actually do have to report that. But anyway, um, uh, you know, so, so specifically to child pornography, for example, if someone is looking at child pornography compulsively and they're really worried about it because they know it's illegal – and they don't know how to stop themselves, and so they go to a therapist, or they're thinking about going to a therapist. They're like, geez, I keep looking at child pornography. I know that it's wrong. It contributes to this horrible exploitation of children. Uh, it, it, it entertains my, um, uh, my sexual preference for children, which might lead to me actually abusing children. I don't know what to do. I, I should probably go to a therapist and talk to them about this. And surely, you know, it, it'll be confidential. Well, uh, if it's, you know, if it's okay, or even by law mandated that therapists turn around and report that to police, how many clients, how many potential clients are going to seek help for this problem? Not very many, right? So, you know, the, 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 the tension between protecting the public and reasonable protection of the public and children and uh, confidentiality is there, right? Um, so the thing is, is that in general, with crimes in general, we very rarely are allowed to break confidentiality if we find out about past crimes. I mean, when I talk with clients when I first meet them, I explicitly tell them, if you tell me you killed someone yesterday, I 
not only not only do I not feel the urge to tell anyone about this, but I legally cannot tell someone about it. I, 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 I use that stark example because sometimes, you know, if I explain confidentiality, they'll be like, well, surely if I killed someone, you would report that. Right. And I say, you know, I'll say, no, it's it's that strict. It's that um, strong, the, the right to confidentiality. If you tell me that you've robbed banks before or you, you steal cars on a regular basis or you um, embezzle from work or, you know, whatever, that I cannot report that to anybody uh, and don't have an impulse to do so because I am a professional who values confidentiality. And if, and if I'm going to help you, I, I want you to know that I'm not going to tattletale on you. So, so, but there are exceptions to that, right? So let's break this out in terms of what we're mandated to report or allowed to report based on past situations versus future situations. So uh, to things that are reported in the past or crimes that are reported to us about past crimes, um, we, there are exceptions in state laws but ordinarily, we are not required to report already committed crimes. You know, like I said, it's if someone said that they killed someone or if they knew of another person who had raped someone or had, you know, had been raped or something or um, or even I looked at child porn in the past. You know, these are all past crimes that ordinarily we don't have to report. Um, the exceptions to this is if we hear about past abuse of a child or a dependent adult. So. Most, if not all, people in the United States are mandated to report uh, disclosures to us about past abuse or mistreatment of children or of a dependent adult, even if it's not uh, criminal it, or even, even if the therapist doesn't think it's criminal. It just has to be what legally is considered to be past abuse of a child or dependent adult, and we have to report that. So, so that's the so that's past situations. What about future? What about future crimes? Saying someone's saying I'm gonna look at child pornography, or I'm going to kill someone, or I'm going to do this. Well, the uh, the set of of laws and ethical codes that pertain to that is our duty to protect. Sometimes people refer to it as um, duty to warn, but actually duty to warn is just a subset of our overall duty to protect. And if you want to hear the full discussion of our duty to, to protect, you want to listen to um, other episodes in which I've talked about that. I did a whole episode on uh, the duty to protect. I think it's called duty to protect. I'm not sure. I, I think I did it a year ago. Uh, anyway, so so we have a duty to protect as therapists if we think that something will happen in the future that is going to uh, reasonably result uh, that a reasonable therapist would predict would result in significant harm to other people. And there's sort of a gray zone there in terms of what that means. But it usually means like significant harm, right? It's not like a kid says, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to punch someone in the face. It has to be like, I have a, a crowbar and I'm going to hit this kid over the head, or I have a gun and I'm going to go shoot this person, or I have a knife and I'm going to slash this person's throat or something like that. So it has to be pretty severe. And if so, if someone discloses to us that they're going to do something like that, or Say, for instance, they say, I'm going to I'm going to drink a ton of alcohol and I'm going to drive around the city. You know, that may be actually we may be actually required to report that. Um, so uh, so those are those are that's just a brief overview of that. Um, the, so the question is, did this counselor break the law 
and ethical codes by breaking confidentiality by going to the police when the counselor found out that his 19-year-old client was looking at child pornography. Well, another detail that sometimes people will point to is like, well, the client's on parole, right? So, and the counselor knew about that. The counselor, hey, my client is on parole for a sexual crime, and uh, my client just looked at child porn, which is a violation of the parole. And I hear a lot of therapists will come to me and they'll say like, well, surely I'm required to tell the parole officer about this violation, right? Well, and the th- the thing is, is the law doesn't say that confidentiality is somehow thrown out the window if your client is on parole. It doesn't change anything, you know, just be, and, and the thing that often will happen is the, the, the probation officer or the probation counselor or parole counselor or parole, parole officer. I, so back in the day, they used to call them probation officers, and then they changed the term to probation counselors. So I don't know about parole officers, but anyway, the parole agent, you know, what will happen to therapists is the parole person will call the therapist and say, you know, so you're working with my person here. And I need you to report to me if if the client does anything to violate the parole, and the therapist will just turn around and report everything that to to the parole counselor, and um, that is potential. That is uh, you know without proper authorization, that is absolutely a violation of the patient's rights, and and you could lose your license and be terribly sued for that. Now. Um, if you have a release of information signed by the client saying it's okay for you to talk to that parole officer, then then that's fine. Um, but that needs to be established. A lot of times when I've been in this situation and someone comes and says, I don't have clients like – I haven't had a client like this in, I don't know, probably 10 years. But back when I used to work with clients like this, you know, the client would say, so by the way, I'm on parole or I'm on probation and – you might get a call from my parole officer. You might get a call from my probation officer. And I would immediately say, well, um, is it okay if I talk to that person? And they, you know, if they're like, no, I don't want you to talk to that person, then I would say, okay, then I'm not going to talk to that person. And, and But if they're like, well, you need to talk to that person because I'm, I'm mandated to be in therapy, and so you, you have to talk to them. And then I say, okay, well, then you need to sign a release of information saying it's okay for me to t- speak to that person. But I've been in situations where, say, a teenage client is being stubborn, and he, he'll say, no, I, I don't want you to talk to my probation officer. And then when the probation officer calls me, I say, I'm sorry, I don't have authorization to talk to, with, talk to you. Now, that's going to upset the probation officer, of course, but then I just tell the probation officer to, um, you know, maybe talk with your person about uh, mandating that they sign a release of information because, you know, that's your job. I can't force someone to sign a release of information. It's unethical for me to require someone I'm treating to sign a release of information. You know, it's just not, it's not my gig. And then the probation officer would... Uh, force the client to sign a, a release of information, allowing me to talk to the probation officer, in which time I, I'd be able to do that. And even then, I would, you know, I'd just make sure that the client was cool with what I'm about to disclose. You know, I'd, I'd be, is it okay if I tell a probation officer this? Is it okay if I tell that they're asking me this? What would you like me to tell them? And, you know, I would, I would always do that because to me, client confidentiality is key. And what I see a lot of people doing in this situation, or not a lot, but some, is they just they consider the probation officer to be 
kind of like in charge of the situation and they will tell the probation officer something that they that the client doesn't necessarily want to be told and i consider that to be a pretty bad violation of patient rights and really the it's a violation of the principles of our field again we are here for our clients we are a confidential space and we only violate that confidentiality under very extreme and particular circumstances. And when we do violate it, we only violate it in as much as we are required to and or what the patient is allowing us to do. So those things are clearly written in our ethical codes and supported by laws and therefore should be followed. Um, I see this I see this situation with teachers as well or you know therapists who work in schools. So sometimes a therapist will be hired, uh, will work for an outside agency, but will ha- have an office in a high school, for example. And all the teachers and the principals and everyone knows that the therapist is working with a number of clients. And the teachers and administration often know the clients that are even working with this therapist. And so as the therapist is walking on the hall, you know, the vice principal will just walk up to the therapist and say, okay, so, you know, I know you're working with Johnny, and uh, so how is Johnny doing in therapy? And there's this notion that the therapist is just supposed to disclose to the vice principal everything that's happening. And I see therapists, especially novice therapists, will just crumble under that pressure, and they'll just tell the vice principal, uh, you know, what they what they want to know. And again, without a release of information signed by that person and maybe even the parents if the child is of a certain age, uh, you can't talk to that vice principal. Just because the vice principal knows that Johnny is in therapy with you doesn't give uh, you, know, you the right to break that patient's confidentiality. Um, and just because you have an office in the school doesn't mean you can break that confidentiality. Anyway, okay, so we've talked about the laws here, and we, we've been trying to answer the question, is, is it uh, legal that this therapist, this counselor, broke confidentiality by going to the police and reporting that his client had looked at child pornography. Uh, the only way that this is okay is if a law mandates it, right? Uh, in the same situation as, you know, a you know, a mother comes into therapy and says, I've been beating my children with a two-by-four when they're upsetting me. And uh, we are mandated to break confidentiality with this client by calling uh, the uh, DSHS, the state. And uh, but in other circumstances, we would we would not do that. So uh, so it's not common knowledge that uh, we are legally required to break confidentiality when a client discloses that they're looking at child pornography in the same way that we're not legally required Um, to break confidentiality if a client said that they had embezzled from work or they had, um, I don't know, uh, robbed a bank or something. You know, we, we, we aren't mandated to report bank robberies that our client tells us that they committed. And therefore, we shouldn't be mandated to report when our clients say that they looked at child pornography. However, um, in 20 in the you know 2015 2017 there's there's been changes in some states and so each state has their own situation and i tried to find information for my own state of washington but i couldn't find anything i didn't look that deep but i'm actually going to consult with 
um, a friend of mine, um, so I don't actually know the answer to this yet. But I do know the answer for California. Um, And there's a 2017 news story, and I'm just going to read portions of this story. A California appeals court has has affirmed a judge's decision to throw out a lawsuit challenging a state law requiring therapists to report patients who admit to viewing child pornography. So chiming in here. So in other words, uh, so so two therapists and a substance abuse counselor who treat sexual addiction and treat people who look at child pornography, they sued the state back in 2015. So so apparently back in 2015, the uh, California ch- passed a law that said that counselors and therapists are mandated to report if their clients are looking at child porn or have looked at child porn. And then so these two therapists and the substance abuse counselor got together and they sued the state saying that um, if if you mandate that by law we have to report this, this means that no one will come to us for help with their use of child pornography. You know, these people will just be further marginalized and not allowed to get help and therefore will be more likely to commit more crimes. And so we need to allow them to have privacy and confidentiality in the same way that we need confidentiality in a lot of other circumstances. Why are we, why are we focusing on people who look at child porn and saying that, that they're, the only, they're one of the only people who, who don't get uh, confidentiality when everyone else does, you know, someone who's embezzling money at work or someone who robs banks and they want to help, they want to get a therapist to help them stop robbing banks or, or someone who is stealing, um, you know, car stereos because they're trying to feed their heroin addiction. You know, these people all have the right and the benefit of confidentiality and therefore are encouraged to get help because they know they're not going to be thrown in jail for disclosing to the therapist what they've been doing. How is child pornography the only one of the only things that has to be um, the exceptions to this? It doesn't. It's not fair to. And so, so the therapist sued the the state of California to change this law, and uh, the California appeals court um, threw the case out and said nope. Um, you uh, see, they, they ruled that there's no zone of privacy for illegal conduct and that uh, patients who seek therapy for downloading child pornography do so knowing they'll be reported and may be prosecuted. So, so that, that's what happened in 2017, which is, which is pretty crazy that I didn't know about this. It's, uh, I'm, getting, I'm guessing some of you out there might have known about this a long time ago, particularly people living in California. I don't know. Um, I've also read that this even applies to teenage clients who tell us that they've been that they've been sexting with their peers. For example, let's say a 17-year-old girl, a uh, client of mine, she so she's 17 years, 17 and a half years old, and she tells me that she sent a picture of, you know, one of her boobs to her boyfriend. <laughs> Well, according to this law, if I was in California, and maybe there's a lot of things in, in Washington, um, I don't know. I don't think so because I would have heard about it, I think. But according to the law in California, I have to report th- what this teenage girl told me to the police and tell them that, that my client is producing and distributing child pornography. <laughs> I mean, do you get what I'm saying here? Like, 
a, a client, a 17 and a half year old client tells me that she sent a picture of one of her boobs to her boyfriend whom her, you know, her parents are okay with. They could, these two kids could even be engaged for all I know. I don't care. And I have to report that. To, I have to immediately call the police and say, I have a client who is producing and distributing child pornography. I mean, it's absurd in that situation, <laughs> uh, in my very confident opinion. <laughs> um, okay. So this raises another question that I think about is that are people in California changing their disclosure statements to indicate that if they hear about child pornography, they have to report this? Because that would be something you'd have to include in your uh, disclosure statement and your discussion about confidentiality. You know, I'm guessing uh, counselors in California are saying things like, so uh, you have a right to confidentiality. Everything you tell me is is secret and confidential, except if you tell me that you're going to seriously harm yourself or other people, or you tell me that you have looked at or distributed child pornography, or you tell me that you have um, abused, or you tell me about anyone abusing a child or a dependent adult. I, I, I don't know. Do do people in California say that? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So so the, so what I'm guessing is is based on what eventually is said in this uh, legal brief that this counselor either was practicing California or is in a or is in a state where it is mandated that they report um, disclosures about child porn use. Okay. So what about the ethical codes? So that that's the law. So we're assuming that the law uh, in the state of the counselor is a mandated child porn disclosure state. Okay, so what about ethical codes? What ethical codes are involved in this case? So again, just to review what happened, the counselor uh, found out that his client in the residential care had looked at child porn, and then the therapist immediately called the police and told them what had happened. Okay, so what, what are the ethical codes involved? Well, one is respect for confidentiality. As As counselors, therapists, mental health people, we have an ethical code to respect confidentiality. So did the counselor respect the the client's confidentiality? And the answer is it seems so, given the law. Um, There is also an ethical code. There's often ethical codes involving that we need to explain the limitations of confidentiality to our clients prior to treatment. So the question is, did the counselor properly explain these limitations to the client? Well, we don't know. Uh, it seems that maybe not, given what comes out later, but we don't know. Another ethical code is that when we do break confidentiality, we disclose minimally, meaning we, we only tell what is necessary to uh, the authorities and to people that we're disclosing to. You know, um, So it, since it was okay to break confidentiality give, given the law, did the counselor disclose too much to the police? And it seems like it's possible that he did. Um, it's, you know, he talked about the parole and all that kind of stuff. I mean, stuff the police would have found out anyway. But again, given what comes out later, it seems that the counselor may have been a little too loose, but not terribly loose, but maybe a little too loose. Anyway, um, another ethical code is that we need to make sure that our clients uh, – have the capacity to understand their confidentiality rights and informed consent when we're explaining that initially in therapy. So 
was the client able to understand his rights when he was when he was explained those rights when he first started therapy? It's hard to know, but it appears that um, that question is positive, meaning that the the client was able to understand. Um, and the the last ethical code that I think is worth highlighting is that we all have we have ethics regarding and, and laws regarding documentation. So was all of the necessary documentation done in this case? And it doesn't appear so. So we'll get into that later. Okay. So let's get back to the story here. So again, client por- child porn counselor finds out reports to police. The police investigate the the 19 year old client goes to jail for a little bit of time. Uh, for parole violation and for looking at child porn. Somehow the story is in, it gets leaked to the press. The press report on it. The client is released. The client comes back to the residential home. And then two years later, so the client is now 21, the client got a lawyer and sued the counselor for, for violating state and federal confidentiality laws. Uh, so the, so the, what I'm guessing what happened was the client uh, was really uh, um, upset that this was in the paper, was in the newspaper, because the the legal consequence for this client having been found out for looking at child porn was actually not that great. The the client had only gone to uh, you know been detained for just a number of days. I'm guessing like five days or something, and was probably told by the parole officer, look. Uh, you can't look at child porn. In fact, you you don't have ac- you can't have access to computers anymore, and you have to go back to treatment and blah blah blah. blah. So that I don't think the legal consequence for the incident was actually very great. But you know, now once you have something reported in the newspaper, the way that the internet works is like if your name is in the newspaper, uh, now anyone who Google's you will find this story, right? And so I'm guessing that he wanted he was just i'm guessing he was really upset about that just just to guess i have no idea but anyway the client got a got a lawyer and sued the counselor for for violating his confidentiality laws and the client wanted compensation he wanted money for a number of things he wanted money for the oh so he spent 30 days in detention um so uh but he so he wanted money for that he's like um, you know, because my confidentiality rights were violated, I wrongly spent 30 days in detention and I want to be compensated for that. I don't know how much he asked for, um, but he wanted money for that. He also wanted money for his attorney's fees. You know, it's like, well, you know, because of your violation, I am now forced to sue you and pay a lawyer, which is $25,000. And so I, I want my attorney's fees. And then he also asked for uh, non-economic damages due to the humiliation he felt when he was arrested and uh, that it was published in the newspaper. So not not sure how much this was. You know, this is what we call um, – what, what do they call it <laughs> sometimes? Um, oh, anyway. Um, uh, pain and suffering, do they call it? Anyway. So I'm not sure how much the total amount was, but I'm I'm guessing over a hundred thousand dollars, maybe even a lot more than that, is what he was suing the counselor for. So the counselor reached out to his malpractice insurance, and the insurance paid for a team of lawyers and experts to defend the 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 counselor. So the defense experts look and investigated, and, and they determined 
that the case was indeed defensible, that the counselor did not act outside of the, you know, the standard of care and did not violate the patient's confidentiality, even considering the state and federal laws. Um, the expert stated that the counselor um, had to report the child porn incident by law. So they, again, they, they must have, this counselor must be in California or another state that um, states by law you have to report it. So other other instances, by the way, where um, you would have to report it in according to the law is if child the child abuse law includes incidents of child pornography uh, because it, it could be considered uh, child abuse and therefore we're mandated to report child abuse right and so the the if a um, you know I don't go into detail on that but so some some laws will state that California's laws did not state that explicitly, and so that's why um, people promoted the idea to actually pass an actual law that specifically said child porn disclosures and therapy have to be reported to the police, and and so there's that. Okay. Um, however, the defense, uh, the counselor's defense team. Were they were worried a little bit because the counselor had not documented the incident well enough, and he hadn't documented the initial conversation about confidentiality well enough. And I don't know the details on that, but it, it appears that his, this this you know clinical director's this counselor's documentation was insufficient. Okay. So then the client's attorney started pressuring for a settlement prior to all discovery. So prior to the the attorneys on both sides really discovering all the facts, the client's attorney was like, "Hey, you know, let's settle. Let you know, let's we'll 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 shave off a certain amount of the money, but we give me the money now and we'll drop the case." Um, I'm guessing because the client's attorney thought that the case was kind of weak, <laughs> um, and that they could scare the client or the counselor into settling, but. The counselor's defense team was confident that they could defend this counselor, and so they refused to settle. And the counselor's defense team filed a motion for summary judgment, and the case was eventually dismissed by the court in favor of the counselor. The court determined, essentially, that the counselor did not violate the client's confidentiality and that the counselor was required to break confidentiality. Um, and yeah, so the amount of money that the uh, mal that my malpractice had to spend on this case was, um, according to them, greater than thirty five thousand dollars. I don't know what that means, but I'm guessing in the ballpark of thirty five to forty thousand dollars for legal fees. And I'm assuming all that was covered by malpractice. Um, and I'm sure the counselor was very happy about that. His uh, malpractice covered all that. Okay. So again, just to summarize here, the counselor found out that his client had looked at child pornography, had downloaded onto a computer child pornography. The therapist in, lives in a state where it is, that's a mandated reporting situation and called the police and told the police uh, enough information but not too much information and then documented the incident and um, moved on with his life. And the courts determined that the therapist did not violate any standard of care or any law. And uh, therefore, um, 
uh, the counselor was off the hook. So <laughs> this is one of the maybe the only time I've ever talked about one of these legal cases and the counselor was found to be innocent, so to speak. <laughs> Usually they're they're guilty. Um, okay, so what are my recommendations to you all out there based on what we can learn from this case? Well, the recommendations is that the first one is make sure you have good malpractice insurance. Uh, I, it's possible that if you're in private practice that you don't have malpractice insurance. Sometimes there are situations where you're required to have it and you need documentation of it. But there are some there are some therapists out there who are in private practice who to save money they just they don't have malpractice insurance and that is that's a, that's going to be a problem <laughs> potentially. Okay, uh, number two, understand the law. So uh, at this point, I don't understand my law in my state, so I am in violation of this recommendation. Um, and everyone should know that ignorance of the law is not a viable defense. So if you break the law in your practice, you can't say, well, no one told me, or my training program didn't train me well enough, or I never heard about this. How am I supposed to know about things I didn't hear about? Well, the way that the law works in this uh, in professional settings is it's not the state's um, uh, responsibility to educate everybody about the law. It's it's our responsibility individually to make sure that we're up to date on changes in the law and and laws that pertain to our profession. And so, make sure you understand the law. And I I and for me in Washington State, I, I googled it for a while, tried to find out. Um, by the way, uh, you know I have to type in all these Google search terms, and so you know child pornography. Uh, mandated reporting Washington State. So now I'm sure I'm being, you know, tagged by the NSA because I've typed in child pornography into Google, which, you know, wasn't great. But anyway, I have a, a friend who's an expert. I emailed him just now, and he has not emailed me back yet. So I don't know the answer, but hopefully I'll know at some point. But that's just for Washington State. You know, every state apparently has their own different law about this. Um, and understand that there can be different laws depending on what sort of child pornography situation they're in. So in some states, from what I understand, we're mandated to report the production or the distribution, but not necessarily if someone downloads it. You know what I mean? So child pornography producing is a different situation than distributing it, which is different than downloading it. So sometimes you got to know the specifics on that. Okay. Number three recommendation is to understand your ethical codes. Again, as with the law, ignorance of your ethical codes is not a viable defense if you have been accused of breaking the ethical codes. Okay, number four is a big one here. Prior to treatment, you, all of us need to have a clear discussion with our clients regarding the full breadth of confidentiality. For example you know, discussing child abuse, mandated reporting, danger to self and others, court order disclosures, and so on. We need to make sure that our clients really understand it. We, uh, and we need to have them sign uh, statements indicating that they understand confidentiality and the exceptions. For example, I have my disclosure statement that I have my clients sign. It's available on my website. And all of this needs to be done, again, prior to treatment, it needs to be done fully before before treatment and it has to be a discussion it can't just be 
you know, that someone signs something, you know. Uh, I've heard people uh, claim like, uh, well, they signed the disclosure statement, so that's good enough, right? And I'm like, well, did you fully describe it to them? Because, uh, you know, and they'll say like, well, I don't know. I mean, they went to another intake person, you know. So just to get specific here, in a situation I run into sometimes is I work with a lot of interns, right? So these interns are students in my program, and they are brand new. And therefore, they're not allowed to do intakes at their agencies. And so a more experienced clinician will do the intake. And then, you know, meaning that they'll do the assessment and all the paperwork and everything. And then they'll hand the file over to the intern and the intern will commence treatment. Well, the interns will come to me and, you know, I'll be talking with them and I'll say like, uh, so did you have, did, did you explain confidentiality to them? And they'll say like, well, the intake person did that. And what I tell my interns is, are you willing to stake your career on the belief that someone else explained confidentiality to them? Is, are, are you willing to like stake your entire career on that faith? Or would you rather just explain it yourself in the first session? <laughs> and, and, you know, hopefully interns are like, well, okay, I, I should probably explain it to them. And, you know, it's just a good practice to get into. Plus, it's sometimes not enough to st- just to explain it in the first session. Sometimes you have to explain it, you know, periodically just to make sure that they really get it. You know, what a lot of therapists will do in this arena is they just want to get it over with. They just want they just want to make their disclosures and move on with treatment instead of really recognizing, look, the disclosures are there for a reason. You know, if if you uh, run into a situation where, like, just take me for example, I, I'm pretty. Uh, I'm a pretty staunch believer in reminding clients about confidentiality and the limitations to it, especially when I think a client is going to tell me something that is going to require me to, to, to break that confidentiality. You know, for example, first session, I explain confidentiality fully, blah, blah, blah. We move on with treatment. Uh, Three years later, the client, so, you know, do I believe the client remembers that conversation? No. But say the client starts to tell the story and is like, so I just, you know, I have to tell you that I sort of lost my temper with my kids uh, yesterday. Well, I would immediately stop them and say, so before you move on with the story, I just want to remind you about my confidentiality and my mandated reporting. So just so you know, I'm mandated to report uh, reports of child abuse. And so if you tell me if, if you're about to tell me that you abused your child, I, I will have to immediately call DSHS. So, so just so you know, and just leave it up to them. Leave it up to the client to decide, you know, what's up with that. Because I don't want to be in a position where a client forgot that I am a mandated reporter, and then they told me something that they forgot I need to report, and then you know they tell me something. And then later on, they could, you know, because they could viably sue me for 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 um, not reminding them sometimes. I don't know. Anyway, so my point is, and plus, I want clients to have the autonomy about that. I'm not I'm not a police officer. I'm not an investigative, you know, professional. I'm a I'm a helper, and um, and I'm also a mandated reporter. But I, I'm not I'm not a I'm not an arm of child protective services. So. Um, I'll do my job, but I'm also um, going to advocate for my clients. Anyway, 
that's a whole conversation about you know child welfare and protection of children and stuff that is much more complicated than that. You know, in short, I guess what I'll say is, if I had a client that said I lost my temper last yesterday with my kids, and then I said, oh, just to remind you, oh, I'm a mandated reporter, and then they proceed to tell me, oh, well, I guess I can't tell you the story then. Well, I'm not going to just drop it. I'm going to say like, well, so you know, in the in the effort to make your family as good as it can be and your parenting as good as it can be and to protect your own children, which I'm sure you're interested in, you know, let's talk about your temper. You know, I, I might not target investigating what this parent did, but I will target the anger and in, in the effort of helping everybody, if you know what I mean. Anyway, so again, prior to treatment, you have to have this full discussion and you need to document the whole conversation. You can't just have the disclosure statement. I've, and I've, I've seen people do this where they're just like, well, I, you know, I, they signed the disclosure statement. That's fine. But that, and, and in the case that I just talked about with this counselor with the child pornography, it, it seemed that they were saying that there wasn't enough documentation that clearly uh, proved that the counselor had, dis, had discussed confidentiality with the client. Because think about it, like, Think about how many uh, terms of uh, terms of service or what do they call it? Ter- agreement to terms, whatever. Like when you sign up for iTunes, for example, and there's just those pages of disclosures, and then you just skip to the bottom and you click "I agree." Well, you actually are not responsible for what was in that disclosure because it's it's not reasonable to expect you to sit there and read through that entire thing. Hence, and, you know, the laws are kind of gray in this area, but it's a reasonable defense to say, no one reads that thing. I just clicked I agree. And, you know, I didn't read the fine print on that. And that, that's a viable defense. And it's a viable defense to a client to say, look, he just gave me a form and I signed it. And I don't remember him. In fact, I'm pretty sure he did not talk with me about confidentiality. I just signed it. I didn't even read his disclosure statement. So it, it's important that you go over the important parts. Now, I don't verbally necessarily go over everything in my disclosure statement with my clients. I just go over the parts that are really critical, and one of them is client confidentiality. In fact, it's the most critical thing that needs to be verbally discussed. So not only do I have it on the disclosure statement, but I also verbally discuss it with my clients, and then I document that in the first session. For example, I might say something like in my notes, I discussed the laws and ethical codes regarding client confidentiality with the client in full full detail. The client acknowledged that he understood and had no questions about it. He also signed my disclosure statement, which I told him was an indication that he understood confidentiality and all the information in the statement. He seemed to be of sound mind during the discussion. He indicated he had heard the disclosures before and was familiar with them, unquote. So, how long did that take? You know, I type pretty fast. It could take me probably, I don't know, 25 seconds to type that out. And and I'm only going to do it in the first session. However, the amount of people I, I have talked to, uh, supervisees I've talked to about this, they'll, they'll say, oh, I didn't know that was required. And, I, and I'm saying it's not required, but it's a damn good practice to have because when, this, when the shit hits the fan and – you don't have documentation that you actually discussed, you know, confidentiality with your client. 
you're going to lose a lot of sleep. Whereas if you have that document and you and you say, look at my first my my the very first session, I have a very clear note that not only did I discuss it in full detail, but I you know I asked them if they had any questions, and I assessed that they were of sound mind. They seemed to really fully comprehend what I was saying to them, and they signed a statement, and you know they said they understood, and therefore, you know, months later when I broke confidentiality, um, you know. They forgot that I talked with them about it, but, you know, that's on them. So, you know, okay. So, again, my recommendations, one, have good malpractice. Two, understand the law. Three, understand your ethical codes. Four, prior to treatment, have a discussion and document that you had that discussion with the client regarding the full breadth of confidentiality. And number five is when an incident occurs, make sure you have proper documentation. So when it, like, when... For example, when the incident happened with the client uh, or with the counselor that we're talking about in this legal case, when that counselor, you know, found out that his client looked at child porn and then called the police, make sure you document that entire thing. Because this case, the legal experts seem to be stating that the counselor had not documented it properly. So you need to document several things. You need to document your decision-making process. You need to say like, okay, well, this happened, and because of this, and here's my understanding of the law, and you know, here's my understanding of this, and so therefore I have to blank, blah, 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 blah. So the clinical decision-making process needs to be – you need to show your work. That, that's what I always tell my supervisees is it's, it's not just reporting what happened. It's, it's like you have to show your work in the same way that you had to show your work when you did a math problem. Because when you show your work, when you're investigated, it shows that you did your due diligence to figure out what to do. And sometimes, even if you came to the wrong conclusion, that will save you. If you went through the steps and, and did your best to figure out the best course of action— and the course of action turned out to be wrong, but your process was sound, you can actually defend yourself on that. Whereas if you came to the same conclusion but didn't actually document how you got to that decision and it was the wrong decision, then you could be hung out to dry in court. So it's very important that you show your work. The other thing is is that you need to consult with someone in situations like this, and you need to document that consultation, what was said. You know, you consult with an expert, and then you, you document that. You say, I spoke with so-and-so uh, about this case, and I did not disclose names or anything. I, you know, we just talked in generality because I didn't want to break confidentiality. And here is what this consultant said. They said that I should blah, 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 blah. And I followed those directions. Again, this is a very uh, important step in the process, obviously, because you need to consult when you run into weird situations. But also when you are being sued or questioned or investigated, if you have documentation of a consultation or several consultations, that will save you. Even again, even if you came to the wrong conclusion, you know, if you consult with three experts and they all told you to do something, and that one thing ended up turning out to be wrong, well, the court will say, what, you know, the defense lawyers will say, well, look, you know, he consulted with three experts and they all told him to do the same thing. You know, what, what else was he supposed to do? I mean, that can totally save you. And, but what I find is a lot of people, one, they don't consult, and two, they don't document it properly. So 
Um, so part of this whole thing has to do with knowing what things need to be documented. Because I actually will also tell my supervisees, don't document too much. Uh, in fact, for novice therapists, the big thing I'm always telling them is if you're spending longer than one minute on your notes for a client, you're spending too much time. You're either writing too much because you think the readers want too much or you don't know how to say things in a very quick manner. You know, like you're trying to use very specific, very, you know, individual language for a particular client when you you don't need to do that. You, there's ways of writing things. And the, the analogy I always give is, you know, how long do you think the notes are that your physician writes about you? You know, you go in and you, you have a sore throat and you go into the physician and, you know, your physician does a couple tests and provides a medication and then you walk out. How, how long do you think the, the medical note is for that visit? It's probably not very long, right? Well, that's what the system expects us to be. They expect us to have extremely short notes. <laughs> they don't want a full narrative of every effing thing you talked about in the session. I mean, not only do is it not necessary, but it will actually annoy people because the, they have to sift through this like narrative to actually glean the information that they're really looking for. What they're looking for are, you know, you know, what treatment goal did you, did you work on and what did you do and what was the response? And that's it. And that can be done. That can be done in literally like 15 words. Uh, we worked on reducing stress by talking about stress management skills such as deep breathing and seeking support. And the client indicated that those skills may work to reduce their stress. End of note. You know, like, and you might say that note several times with one client and maybe the exact same note with other clients as well. There's nuances to all this, of course. You can actually get in trouble if all your notes look the same. I can get into that another time. But anyway... Um, so, so I'm actually a proponent for most of the time telling my supervisees to not document too much. You know, it's like stop documenting too much. But on the flip side, I'm saying when an incident occurs that is of, you know, importance to document is the important thing is recognizing those incidents and then consulting about even even how to document it. So not only do you need to consult about what to do in a situation, but you should also consult with someone about how do I document this whole situation? Because again, uh, you know, novice therapists don't necessarily know how to do that. There's actually no class that teaches therapists that I know of how to how the nuances of documentation. I mean, certainly there are classes on like treatment planning and stuff like this, but I find that whenever I start working with an intern or even a recent grad, um, there or even people who are 15 years into the profession, honestly, uh, they all have extremely um, limited understanding of, of documentation and proper documentation. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation with a supervisee or a consultee where we are struggling to figure out a way to cover their ass, given the fact that they didn't document well enough. You know, someone will come to me and say, so I'm in this pretty hairy situation where I'm being sued or I'm being complained about. And, you know, I don't know what to do. And I'll be like, well, let's take a look at your documentation. And then I just, you know, face palm as I read their documentation. I'm like, oh my God, like we could have solved all your problems 
you know, a year ago, if you just would have asked me like two or three questions, I could have solved your entire problem here by, you know, having you just document just a, and again, it's not a lot of work. It's just uh, a minute a day could, could save your life in this situation. But anyway, so again, so number five recommendation is when an incident occurs, recognize it as a situation that needs to be documented thoroughly and then make sure you document it thoroughly. Again, your decision-making process, uh, the people you consulted with, what the results was of the consultations. Another thing that needs to be documented is, is policies. So uh, if you work at an agency, and particularly if you're a clinical director, you need to make sure that you have policies about everything important. So policies about which forms need to be filled out, about procedures, the chain of command, documentation, about uh, specific actions that need to be taken. For example, if you live in a state where it is mandated that child pornography disclosures be reported to, to the police, then you need to have a policy about that because that's pretty specific. You know, there needs to be something on in your policies. You know, policy fourteen five. You know, stroke eight uh, disclosures of child pornography distribution, production, and um, and downloading or consumption are, you know, at uh, Seattle Counseling um, Services, our policy is da, 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 da. And it, you know, you just lay it all out there. And not only does that help you to solidify how to follow, because you would, you would consult with a lawyer about that too, right? So not only does it help you sort of make sure you understand, but it also like gives you something to give to people as you're training them. And it also releases you as a clinical director from being liable potentially if one of your employees doesn't follow that policy. Because if you train them on that policy and they don't follow the policy, then you're off the hook for the most part, right? Whereas if you have no policy as a clinical director, nothing written down, and particularly if you have no documented training of people in this situation and your employees break the law and do something bad, then you're on the hook too because you didn't actually provide a policy or training or guidance about this at all. And so there needs to be policies. And I've worked with people on this before, and there there are some agencies that are small and don't know they need to do that and or don't have resources to do it or something, and it's a huge wide-open hole or door for being sued and getting in trouble. So you also need to document what the client did after you did your thing. You know, I called the police. This is what the client did, blah, blah, You need to document exactly what was said to the police and what the police did in response. And then, you know, your safety plan, what's the client returns, and just all that kind of stuff. You know, I, what I'll say is in, in – um, in sort of uh, conclusion about documentation is, you know, I know it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> I always, whenever I talk with supervisees and consultees, I, I always get this exasperated look from them. They're just like, Oh my God, it just sounds like so much work. And, and it can be initially to learn how to do it well, but my God, it's worth it. I mean, there are situations that I've been in, in my own practice where I just, I sleep so much better at night knowing that my documentation is up to snuff. And when I have been working with people in hairy situations, which I would venture to say happen at least once a year to, to counselors, that when when they have proper documentation, man, it feels so good to just have all your ducks in a row. You know, we're not... The, the main thing to know is that 
a lot of situations for us, we're not responsible for what happens. We're responsible for what we did and how we documented it. <laughs> you know, like we're not, for example, we're not responsible if a client decides to kill somebody. We're not responsible for that. But we are responsible for what we did with the information that we had and how we documented that. That's an important thing to understand because a lot of people say like, well, I'm responsible if a client kills themselves or kills someone else, or I'm responsible if a client abuses their children or something like that. And the fact is, is no, the courts don't even see it that way. Our duty to protect involves a duty to take action, uh, reasonable action, and to document that. And the documentation is like to uh, cover our ass, right? To, and also for, you know, continuity of care so that not only us, but other people in the future can see what happened and what we did and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, I, over time, since I have made an effort to do this, I can document all these kinds of things in the span of 30 seconds. But, you know, it took me a long time to get there and practice made it faster for me. And in the beginning, it took a long time, but it, it was worth it. So um, I recommend everyone do this. And I know that some of you do. I know to some of you, I'm preaching to the prior, to, to preaching to the prior. <laughs> it's almost midnight. I'm preaching to the choir. So uh, if you're one of those people, I commend you. And I congratulate you on being able to sleep well at night. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. And document well because you deserve that too.